Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I want to start out today, though, with uh, a really interesting story that is a, a bit of a follow-up, but a bit of a development in, well, it's a deve- story about development. You may recall that last year at this time, almost to the day, Hamilton City Centre was purchased and there was a, a plan that there was going to be a beautiful new development there, um, condominium project hundreds of condo units. It was going to really help to redevelop that part of town. Of course, this is, uh, the old Eaton center area, the Hamilton city center. This of course was going to be right next to the new first Ontario center redevelopment and whatever else happened. Well, a year later, it's still boarded up and nothing has happened. It remains not having anything done to it right now. So what is going on with this building? Uh, Daryl Furston is the head of uh, the company, he, the developer is ahead of the company who is behind this joins us. Now, Daryl, how are you today? Hey, great, Scott. Thanks for having me on here. Well, listen, I really appreciate you doing this because this was and is, I, I don't want to put it entirely in the past tense because I don't think it's in the past tense, although you can correct me. This was something that a lot of people were really excited about to see that there was going to be this development in the downtown. Why has nothing happened yet? Yeah, good question. Um, of the people that are really excited, I would probably rank myself number one. So I'm super excited for this development, and this development will happen. Uh, our company's you know, completed 16 developments in the last 10 years, and this is another one that will happen. Uh, unfortunately, it's a little bit of a sign of times. Um, we're ready to start construction. Uh, our construction management team is ready to go. Uh, the issue is we're condo builders, and to build condos, we need to meet pre-sale tests, as in we have to sell a certain amount of condos, and there is just no market right now to sell condos. It's the volume that we have to to complete this project. Is there no market because, uh, and I'm wondering if there's a number of reasons here, one of them obviously mortgage rates is, I, I'm assuming, one of the really big factors in here, but also, uh, you know, th- this is going to be along the path or close to the path, I guess, of, uh, of well, along the path of the LRT. That still hasn't gotten going. Like, there's a lot of different things. Is, are, wh- what would you look at? Is mortgage rates the driving thing behind this or are there other uh, reasons? Yeah, good question. So... I'd say mortgage rates are probably 97% of the reason okay. we're on pause at the moment. Uh, and that's the whole condo market. It's not us. We're not special. Uh, and then the other 3% is other things. Being on the LRT is amazing. I know it hasn't started yet, but that's actually a positive for selling condos here. Um, the negative is current mortgage rates. No real estate makes economic sense at the current cost of borrowing. I think everyone's aware of that. The Bank of Canada is well aware of that as well. So does that mean that if you were to start building right now, the price of the condos that you would put on the market would simply be so high that nobody would buy them? The the price we'd sell at is, is a you know, probably a similar price to what things have sold for recently. The issue is there's not enough buyers. Buyers can't make economic sense of it, given what their mortgage rates would be and their cost of carrying wouldn't make any sense relative to either the rents they'd collect or you know, relative to their income, if they're an owner occupier, their income, like it's just not going to make any economic sense. And again, it's not us. It's kind of like every condo project everywhere. And Daryl, you know, one of the questions that I think a lot of people have probably had understanding what you just said about mortgage rates and interest rates being a real deterrent right now and a real stumbling block, they will at some point though, go down, we assume, and then people may be ready to buy 
why not begin the construction? Why not knock the place down or clear it out or do whatever? All the foundational stuff has to be done to have it ready so that it can be selling and moving really quickly when that happens. Cause it doesn't look like anything is happening yet. Yeah. Um, good question. So for starters, in order to build pretty much any condo project, we rely on banks to finance them. So we put in a certain amount of our own equity, which we have, that's not an issue. Then we need some of our banks on board for that in order for them to show up. We need to meet pre-sale tests. We have to show there's a viable market. Uh, and, and again, we don't believe for a project of this size there is a viable market right now. Now, we could start demolition. That is true. It's not a big cost to that. The issue is we don't know when mortgage rates are going to come down and when the condo buying consumer is going to show up again. And what we don't want is to have a big hole in the center of Hamilton. Um, we feel this is a better spot to be waiting in than with a you know, risky hole sitting there. Yeah. And the reason that I mentioned that is because we have been told, and I think we now believe that First Ontario Centre, just on the same block, basically almost, that construction on the renovation of that is going to be getting going very soon, um, early in the spring. And so I was wondering, you know, is this the time that the whole block gets knocked down and you do it all at once? Um, I mean, we operate independently of them. Their, sure. their financing is more related to different government programs. Ours is more in the open market and requires buyers who are buying condos. Um, they know they have their financing in place, um, whereas ours requires buyers to buy a certain amount of units, as with any other condo project. And we just don't want to leave that hole sitting there if it's going to take a while. Hopefully it won't. You know, hopefully interest rates will start dropping next year and, you know, retail condo buyers will be back in the market. And we think this is an awesome project. It's dead center downtown. Uh, the design is amazing. Um, we're confident in our ability to sell when the market is there to sell. You have not put any of these, I mean, they, they when you people go for like a model showing or whatever, or they have the office there, you haven't gone that route yet, have you? You haven't put it out onto the market to find out what the market is? No, no, we haven't launched the project yet. So are there... Like essentially, if the re- if the rates dropped overnight, we know they're not dropping overnight. But if they did, is the design, is the architecture, are the plans, is everything essentially ready to go as soon as it's plausible? Pretty much. Uh, we already have conditional site plan approval from the city. We could probably get a demo permit like inside of a month. Uh, so yeah, we'd be pretty much ready to go. What we are doing in this interim pause uh, for macroeconomic conditions is taking the time to closely look at our design and refine it a little bit. Not big things that you're really going to notice, uh, more like uh, entrances, efficiencies of loading, parking, things like that, more utilitarian things to make the building more functional. In terms of its basic design, four towers, the height of the towers, the number of units, that's not changing. We're just looking at the utilitarian aspects at the ground level. Is there any chance this doesn't happen at all? There's a chance of anything, but I've never not built a condo project in the past 13 years I've been doing this. We've built a lot of stuff, and uh, we have no intention that this should be any different. Actually, of all our different projects, it's probably the most exciting one. Uh, So I I couldn't imagine that happening. You are, I mean, you are an independent company, and I'm not suggesting that anyone should think anything otherwise, but have you had any pressure from anyone at the city calling you up saying, uh, Daryl, come on, let's get this thing moving. This was, this was part of the plan to get the downtown 
freshened up and getting going? Like, has, has anybody been on the blower to you to say, let's get moving here? No, I mean, there, we are not the only condo project that's going to be paused. Basically, every condo project that hasn't gone on sale yet is going to be paused, not just in Hamilton. That's a Toronto pro- problem. That's an Ottawa problem. It's a Kitchener problem. Everywhere. So I don't think anyone's surprised by any of this. They know it's going to happen. It's just going to require a little bit of patience to get there. And does, um, and does that mean then that when the conditions become better, that there is going to be cranes everywhere in the city? Like, are you expecting that there is going to be a construction boom when the rates drop? I think so. Um, I think we've, I mean, just looking at macroeconomically, we have a shortage of housing in this province. We have Hamilton chalk generically in the province, but Hamilton is, you know, the same thing. There's a shortage of housing. Rents have continued to go up over the course of the last year, and there's very little production of new housing because of interest rates where they are. Immigration continues in Canada, which is wonderful. That's what makes Canada such a great company, uh, country. There's a supply and demand problem. There's not going to be enough places for people to live. So I think that's going to catch up in a couple of years from now. So I think there'll be a lot of demand for new housing, and we'll build as much as we can. The problem is... Uh, there's only so many concrete formers and so many drywallers and so many electricians. And I think that'll probably be the limiting factor when we get out of this sort of interest rate funk that we're in right now. And once you get started, what's the time frame? How long are you expecting this is going to take before somebody moves in once you get construction started? Yeah, good question. So it's a phased project. There's four towers and we've divided into four phases. Uh, phase one will take about four years to build. So from the time we start construction, give or take four years. Um, that's for phase one. When will phase two start? It again, depends on the market. We could potentially start building phase two before phase one is completed. If there's a market, if there's enough people interested in buying these units, we could start on the next successive phases before earlier ones are done. And if the market's slower, we'll have to build them one at a time. For building them one at a time, it's going to take us over a decade to get there. If we're building them with some kind of overlap, you know, it could be 10 years, eight to 10 years till the end. But the first one will be done within about four years of starting construction. Just before we go, because we're short on time and I really appreciate you doing this today. Is there any, I mean, again, I understanding what you're saying about interest rates and that being the driving force behind this, but does this send any kind of message about downtown Hamilton that a building like this can't get going now? Because there are condos being built elsewhere. There are places that are building and people are simply saying, I want those in that area so badly that I will pay the premium. Clearly you don't believe that people would pay the premium for this right now because of the rates. Is that a message about this area? No, I don't think there's anything special about Hamilton. I'd question your data there. I think a lot of the construction you see, listen, we have a 46-story tower under construction in Kitchener right now. I have one in Kingston, an 11-story building under construction. I have a 12-story building in Toronto under construction. We can't simply say there's something wrong with Hamilton. What's special about those three projects is really simple. We went on sale in early 2022. There's a lag between when you go on sale and when you start seeing the cranes in the air, and probably a lot of what you're seeing under construction was sold in the quote-unquote good times. Okay. I think you'll see very little starting construction that sort of went on sale in the second half of 2023 or into what's coming in 2024. Uh, that is uh, that is Daryl Furston. He is the man who is behind the Hamilton City Center project, which uh, 
soon, someday, will be up. And uh, we look forward to that. Daryl, listen, appreciate you taking time to talk today. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know if this is going to, this next topic is going to satisfy anyone, quite honestly. But there is a, well, you know, remember what happened months ago when the federal government and then the provincial government of Ontario decided they were going to pour billions, tens of billions of dollars into electric vehicle batteries, plants here, give grants and just pour enormous, unbelievable sums of money to get these plants here or keep them here. Well, uh, that may have seemed like a really good idea at the time. And in fact, it might be a really good idea. But there's a new report out. It was uh, done by autotrader.ca based on searches and other things that seems to be showing Canadians are having less and less interest in electric vehicles. This, I don't think, would be a good thing. If your whole business model as a government with these grants is to get electric vehicles built and sold and people aren't interested in electric vehicles, what's your money doing? Are we simply throwing money away? I think it's a legitimate and problematic question. I want to bring in Eric Cam. He is a professor at Toronto Metropolitan University of Macroeconomics, Monetary Economics, and International Monetary Economics. He joins us now. Eric, how are you today? Scott, I'm doing well, but I'm waiting for the Hanukkah music. I, you know, I thought of that as soon as we came into this segment. I went, we should have probably switched it up. Ben will get something to send us out with at the end to, to be more appropriate. But uh, listen, thanks for doing this. I do appreciate it. Um, what about this? Uh, our governments, not just one, our governments have poured an awful lot of money into electric vehicles on the belief that people are really going to want to buy electric vehicles eventually. And I don't know if that, if this is a blip or if this is something else, if you were one of those people who had signed on for all of this money, would you be nervous? I would be very nervous. And if our government wants to move to a zero emission policy with respect to cars and driving, well, then they may want to try actually motivating the public to do so. I mean, what is in the system right now, other than the government saying you have to switch over at some point to motivate people, to incentivize people to move over? Because frankly, I can't find it. Buying cars has always been what we call a residual purchase. It's important, but it's not as important as housing your family. Well, unfortunately, this is the worst time to house your family in many, many years. Thanks to the high interest rate environment we live, there just isn't that residual dollar to buy an electric car. But let's just assume for a second there was. There isn't, but let's just assume that there was. When you walk into the dealership, there is less of them. The prices are significantly higher than gas powered cars. These government subsidies that were going to be thrown around left, right and center aren't out there at all. So I'd like to know for people that have done any research at all to know that a first generation of a vehicle is never the best generation of engineering. If your battery should die in this car, it can cost about $10,000 to purchase a new battery, no subsidies, nothing from the government. In my opinion, that net zero is meaningless. Meaningless because if you cannot afford a home to start with, who's gonna choose a car that's more expensive, Scott. Well, yeah. And you know what? You're right. I don't know. I'm sure there are, 
reasonably priced and reasonably, re- the word reasonable, I've got in air quotes because I don't know that there's any car out there right now that's all that reasonably priced, even used. But uh, I, I'm sure there are reasonably priced EVs out there. You just don't hear much about them. It's, it seems as though they are very, very, very expensive. And you're right. People have a lot of other things to spend their money on these days. Well, that's the point, right? On average, they're more expensive. On average, they're actually significantly more expensive. How do I know this? Because one of my cars, the lease expires in March and I've been looking. So the only constant across all of these cars are the interest rates. We know that they're at highs now. The prime has just gone up 10 times in the last couple of years. So now you've got higher price for the car, higher carrying costs for people that are already terribly cash strapped to feed their kids house their kids and close their kids that I just, I don't know what the government can point to and say, we are going to incentivize you to move into something with less emissions. Right now, I just, frankly, Scott, I can't see it. And I'm not sure that this is just a short-term problem because if you were to buy a house, if Eric Ham was to buy a house today trying to get into the housing market, it's not like you've paid this off in the next two or three or four years when things maybe get a little bit better. So you suddenly are flush with cash to go out and get this new car or even this used car. People who are having these expenses are having these expenses now for a long time. Let me tell you two things about that. Number one, if Eric Cam was looking to buy a house today, I would drive by my house because I couldn't afford it with rates where they are. And number two was also brilliant, but I forget what it is right now. Oh yes, that about 60 to 70% of mortgages in this country are going to come due in the next two or three years. Scott, people are not going to have more disposable income. They're going to have less and they are not going to point that less disposable income toward a car with a higher ticket price and a higher carrying cost. So was this then, even uh, you know, we say in retrospect, I don't want to be a Monday morning quarterback. I'm not sure we are here. Was it a completely faulty idea for governments to get this much involved in electric vehicles? You know what? No, but they've got to roll it out better. Like so many things, they had an idea. It's not bad. The idea of reducing emissions is something that everybody wants. Some parts of this are really not their fault. They probably didn't expect COVID. They probably didn't expect inflation to almost collapse the economy. We can't just hang that on the government. The problem is now it's up to the government to figure out a strategy to combat everything I just said and still incentivize people to look for those electric cars. And I don't think the government has a trick up their sleeve. Well, there's one other thing that I think is a real problem with this, and I don't see much being done about it. And that is if you're driving along one of the highways in this province and you pull into one of those OnStar, what are they, not what are they called? The, uh, the roadside things, any, any one of those gas stations or whatever, uh, there are, there might be one or two or three electric vehicle charging things, but there's not... 20, there's not 30 at most places. And if you go up North, um, you know, go up to cottage country, you're going to have a hard time finding somewhere often to charge that car. If we want people to buy these things, surely we have to create the infrastructure that makes it easy for people to use them. We have to do that. Everything you said is true. And number two, how about the fact that if you look at the futures markets, the price of electricity is going up. And if people have noticed, the price of gas is coming down. Like I say, not all of this is the government's fault, 
but this couldn't have rolled out worse for the government in terms of trying to influence people to buy electric vehicles. Right, and and we have heard that uh, you know there are pushes for us to go far more electric use as opposed to fossil fuels. And I think we know that if everybody suddenly has to use electricity, the price of electricity is probably going to go up, which again will affect the car situation. It's, I mean, it, it does seem like there's not a lot going right for this, as you say right now. It doesn't seem like the path has been smooth for this to be successful. Well, that's right. And like I say, you know, I often come on your show and blame the government. And let's face it, sometimes there's what to blame. This one isn't totally their fault, but... Governments are in the business of finding solutions, and I think this government better move fast before this idea goes completely awry, because right now I see zero, zero reason for anybody to buy an electric car unless they're willing to spend more to clean up the environment, and I'm afraid that that's very, very few people. I just want to very quickly read an email that just, or a text that just came in from Dar. Uh, Hi, Scott. I work for a new car dealer. Seems to us that everyone who wanted EVs already has them. People are not keen on the somewhat limited range, especially in a winter snowstorm, sitting in traffic with lights, wipers, and heater all draining the battery. If it dies on the road, it's not like you can go to the nearest farmhouse and borrow a gallon of electricity. That's, um, I think that's what a lot of people's concern is. And until there's something that convinces people otherwise, I think this is going to remain a concern. Uh, that is Eric Cam. He is an economics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. Sir, happy Hanukkah. Uh, really appreciate you coming on as always. Thank you for doing this. Season's greetings and stay healthy, Scott. You as well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Got home last night and after doing a little work, thought, you know what I want to do? I'm, I want to check out the game that's on, the hockey game that's on, because it was the first matchup between Connor McDavid and Connor Bedard, the current king of hockey, the future king of hockey, and both of them, according to the highlights anyway, put on an unbelievable show. But somehow, to my staggering surprise... When I flipped on the channel on the guide that said Edmonton Oilers versus Chicago Blackhawks, a screen popped up that said, this game is blacked out in your area. Let me bring in Steve Foxcroft. He is a sports analyst. He is a a referee. You'll see him standing on the sidelines holding the the yardsticks at Buffalo Bills game. Sir, how are you? I'm great, Scott. How are you? And I'm going to tune in later because I want to know how to spell Leah. Well, there you go. So but we'll get back to that one. I want to go yeah. to this one though for a second because I'm trying to watch this game that is featuring the best game, the best player in hockey against the guy who's supposed to eventually be that. For the life of me, I can never, I could not imagine that if the first game between, say, Michael Jordan and LeBron James, I could not imagine the NBA would be moronic enough to black it out. They would have beamed it everywhere. They would have put it into your bathroom if they could have while you were in the shower to make sure you watched that game. How stupid can the NHL be? They can't be much stupider than that. And there's a few stupid things going on in the sports world over the years. And this is one that, not only in this one, but remember, like, in the NFL, you had to sell out 48 hours in advance for the blackout to be lifted and the CFL used to be blacked out all the time for home games and you couldn't watch like you lose generations by doing that. And to your point, 
These are generational talents that you have to flaunt everywhere. And I don't care if it's because it's in the home area of someone else. Give everyone a chance to pick what they want to watch. You have to do what you said earlier, Michael Jordan, LeBron James. You got to broadcast that to the moon. Yeah. No. And and, and, and Steve, the thing is, I'm I, I disagreed back in the '70s and '80s when the CFL went to local blackouts. I disagreed with the NFL. Clearly, I believe that those blackouts in the CFL really hurt the future of that league. I think it did huge damage to that league. But I at least kind of get the theory behind it. If we don't show the game on TV, you've got to go to the game. It didn't work, but I at least get the idea. There was 0% chance that me in Hamilton, Ontario was flying to Edmonton to see that game. This did not affect ticket sales because there was no way I or anyone else in this area or in the rest of North America was going to that game. If you didn't live in Edmonton, you're not going. There was no purpose to it. Excellent point. And geography is a huge factor. And in the old days, I guess, we never had the opportunity because of geography to even have some of those games appear on our cable. So let's use the technology that we have now and let people see. And even to go to the point of in the old days, too, when they blacked it out, there's certain people that even if they could go to the games, they couldn't go to the games. They're shut in, they're whatever, they can't go. But in this case... Let us watch these two people. Let us broadcast it to everyone, like we said, on the moon to see it. And, you know, uh, there's a guy in town, Don Switzer at Brandt Equipment. He and the family that owns Brandt, they own the Regina Pats. So I've had great conversations with him about Connor Bedard and how he was and how he handled himself. And just it just makes you even more pumped up to go home and watch the game and turn it on, and it's like, oh, no, you're infringing on Toronto's territory or something, so we won't let you watch it. That is ridiculous. Well, the and other thing also- yeah, the other thing is, and just I want, to, I want you to keep going, but just the, the thing on that is, too, uh, the blackout, as you pointed out accurately in the NFL and the CFL, the blackout was lifted if the game was sold out. I guarantee you that the game in Edmonton to see Connor Bedard was sold out. Guaranteed. Exactly. Yeah. So no one else can go see it. No. So all the more reason why to lift it. And there doesn't need to be a time uh, allotment put in play either. This game would have sold out the minute it got on sale. So let us see these two guys go at it. Like, it's about promoting your game. And there's more competition now than back in the days that we're, we're kind of expressing and talking about with the CFL and the NFL and all that. Now there's competition all over the place. Like even with Draymond Green last night, that's basketball and boxing all combined into one. <laughs> this is this is true. For those who don't know, uh, Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors got kicked out for uh, uh, punching somebody in the head. Although I don't know yeah. that that was a punch. It was a it was a wild swing, but he gets called for a punch. But no, I just yeah. anyway. I just the NHL yeah. is always the fourth at least uh, sport in the North American market. You can make an argument maybe that NASCAR has passed it or maybe even soccer in some places has passed it. Why you don't lose your mind and put that everywhere, as you say. You should have paid every single bar in North America to have that game on their TV. Exactly. Rather than hiding it. 
you're trying to grow a game where it is tough because a lot of people were watching the NBA and were watching Draymond Green slug whoever is in his path. So you're trying to grow it, especially in the southern and southwestern states. So here's your opportunity to do it with generational talents and you're blacking it out. Like that's just that's doesn't make just a lot of sense. The boat. You doesn't know, make a like lot of sense. A, as bad as let's go to Atlanta and give them a team for the third time. So uh, we got a call from someone saying that it was a, a what? Who, ben he says it was who? An MLSE thing? I don't think that can be right because it was on Rogers. So, but anyway, that's. Uh, I think it does though. I think it's a little bit about that. It's MLSE because they own the Leafs and it's in the Leafs territory. Okay, but so even the even Leafs w- were playing. But this was after the Leaf game. The Leafs game was done. Yeah. So, so it wasn't going head-to-head. And if, okay, so if that was somehow the Leafs having some, or MLSE having some sort of rule over that, or yeah. even though the Leafs were not playing at that moment, then the NHL should have called up the Leafs and said, get your head out of your butt. This is not mm-hmm. the time to be doing stupid stuff. One way or another, the NHL should have guaranteed that that game was on TV. I don't care who's ultimately, who initially is responsible with the minutia. The NHL should have guaranteed that game was everywhere. And right. it's not to say that everyone in this viewing area is a Leaf fan. Like, we're, we're a melting pot of, of society and fans. Like, don't... Don't jip off some fans because they're fed up with mm. the Leafs since 1967. They can't yeah. win. So allow them the opportunity to have other fandom, too. Like they're, you're, All we're doing here is just proving our point again and again and again about how awful it is of a rule, I guess you could say, or giving Leafs that territory because somebody should then switch, flip the switch as soon as the Leaf game ends to then open it wide up again to yeah. have the game on. Ab- like absolutely. Then, if you are going to go with that rule, which is also antiquated and dumb, then as soon as the Leaf game ends, it should have come right on your screen for you. No question. No question. All right. Best case. <laughs> we are talking to Steve Foxcroft, and the reason I say that again is, A, for anyone joining in late, but also... Uh, around here, the Foxcroft last name is synonymous with officiating. Of course, Steve's dad, Ron, uh, longtime NCAA official, his brother, Dave, longtime CFL official. As I said, off the top, Steve guy who works the Buffalo Bills games. So you're the perfect guy for this because on the weekend and it has carried on amazingly, this story just will not let up because what happened on the weekend, the Buffalo Bills, uh, the Kansas City, we're playing Kansas City. Kansas City got called late in the game for offside. The player, an off, a, a, a wide receiver lined up with his foot in the neutral zone. The ref throws a flag. It turns out that that happened to be one of the great plays ever, but it gets wiped out. And the Kansas City Chiefs and their fans completely lose their minds and are just ripping the referee's head off for applying the rule the way he did. So as one of the members of the first family of officiating, where, how, when should rules be called? Should there be subjectivity or should all rules be called by the book? This seems like it's an interesting case study in when do we call rules, when do we not call rules? That is a great question and probably not, I can't give you the great perfect answer, but I always used to say this. When there's video, and there's always video now, even if you go to an elementary school basketball game or any game like that, somebody has video. 
don't mess it up where video can prove you wrong. Just go with what video does. And that, in that case, Tony Romo said it many times during the broadcast. The video didn't lie. The video was the evidence that they needed. He was offside. and They, they aren't even arguing it. Yeah. Like, it's not even a question that it's offside. And the poor officials now who... They're wrong, 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 wrong. And even when they're right, now they're being criticized. And that's disappointing. And what was disappointing, too, was the reaction of Mahomes, how he treated Josh Allen, how he treated the post-game interview. And then the next day, they let him speak and sort of apologize. I thought it was going to be something more of a scripted, pre-written apology. But they didn't go that far. They just let him kind of try and make amends by saying, well... So you know, I feel bad the way I... He didn't disagree. He still disagreed with the call. He just sort of said, well, I shouldn't have acted the way I did. Here's one of the, the th- points that always seems to get lost in this, to me anyway. Uh, this is not the case of a blown call, all right? We can, we can have discussions all day long about referees that blow a call where you look at the replay after and you go, man, that was just a... You know, he whiffed on that one. That's, that's not what we're talking about because by all accounts... Everybody agrees this was offside. It's a question of whether it's appropriate to call it or not in the circumstance because it wasn't that far offside. We see this in the CFL constantly with guys running up to the line. Like, was he was he a little offside? Was he, uh, you know, how far was it? We see that all the time. Anyway, my argument on this, Steve, is always this. Let's say that they didn't call this offside against Kansas City this time. Are you then, by definition, by saying we are not going to penalize Kansas City, by definition, are you not saying we have decided, therefore, we are going to penalize the Buffalo Bills because we're not going to call what is a penalty, so we don't want to upset one team, so we're going to give it an advantage over the other team. You You cannot have a rule that is correctly called or not called when it should be called that doesn't affect one team or the other. You've just decided which team you're going to affect. Exactly, and that's why referees wear stripes, because they're neutral, and they just they got to referee what's in front of them and what they see. And sometimes they will miss calls. Sometimes they will get them wrong. And that time they didn't get it wrong. They got it right, and now they're being criticized for it. But, but you know... And what you're alluding to is it would have taken 30 seconds for the Buffalo social media people and then their media in Buffalo to have those pictures, all the pictures that have come out afterwards, they would have surfaced. Right. So Kansas City is upset. Kansas City is upset. But if you don't call it, Buffalo's upset. Exactly. But, But one of them is correct and one of them is incorrect. And the Buffalo people would have been correct. The, the Kansas City people are incorrect. And it's not even close. You can't even talk about it. And, and here's me as a ref, like you said, first family of refereeing. I was watching the play, obviously not knowing what's gonna, how it's going to play out. But I was saying, he's offside before the ball was snapped. And I was kind of glad I saw the flag go up. And that's before anything developed, right? So you, they just got it right in my mind. And then, of course... You can't sort of say, too, oh, well, retroactively, that could have been one of the top ten plays of the year. 
So we'll just pick up the flag because it was minuscule. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, we I could just see the referee standing at midfield saying, you know, in, a, after giving it some second thought and watching the replay, that was an awesome play. So no penalty anymore. Yeah. This will be the highlight of the night. So we got to pick up that flag, even though it was obvious. Like, you can't referee retroactively. You yeah. got, and you can't referee like there's no video either. I will get you in trouble. I look at the NHL now, and for better or for worse, uh, I, uh, you now have replay opportunities for offside. And, uh, interestingly, it's the exact same thing here, but the play could go on, and it has at times, the play could go on for a minute after the offside happened, and yet if they score a goal and it was offside, they go to review, and if it is offside, that goal is waved off. It is. It is. This is a cut-and-dried rule. There's no interpretation really on this. There's no subjectivity. You're either offside or you aren't offside. My point is I'm sort of stunned by the ongoing discussion about this because if you don't want to have offside as a rule or if as somebody, I think it was uh, Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback said, look, it had nothing to do with the play. So why are you calling it? Well, if that's the case, you know what? The Buffalo Bills lost a game a couple of weeks ago because they had 12 men on the field for a field goal attempt that was missed. That 12th guy had no impact on the play whatsoever. Why should the yeah. Buffalo Bills have not won that game? Because there, there was no impact on that play. So disregard it. And I think some of Patrick's frustration is the success or lack of success of the team overall, not just in that one instance. And I think it's building up, and I think he lost his cool and showed – you could say true colors or uncharacteristic colors came out of his, the way he behaved. But the week before, if they had the CFL rules and ha- allowed the coaches a pass interference challenge, Kansas City, none of, this, none of this reaction may have happened. Because Green Bay, I think it was Green Bay, right? They would have been flagged for, a, for an obvious pass interference call that was missed. What, and Patrick yeah. Mahomes alluded to that when he was talking, too. Okay. The irony of all of this is that I don't think that there is a team in professional sports that over the last decade has had more close calls go in its favor than Kansas City. It was so interesting when Mahomes said, you know, if it shouldn't have, if it has nothing to do with the play, let it go. He won a Super Bowl last year because of a holding call that had nothing to do with the play that gave him, that gifted him the winning touchdown. And so, you know, you look at this and you go, okay, really, with all the gifts, and here's the other one that I found so interesting, is that Dan Orlovsky, who works on the NFL Network, put together a video that showed that Tony, the receiver, had been offside like six times through the game, and they only called this one. And I'm thinking, wait, why are you complaining then that they called this one, you should be very thankful he didn't get flagged five previous times. They got away with five of them before. He finally exactly. got called. Yeah, exactly. And it was, and it's at the end of the day, it's like knowing the speed limit and going the speed limit. you got to know where you are and the speed you're going. Tony, he looked inside, he looked outside. He has to know. It's his responsibility at the end of the day where he's lining up. That's a great... to the referee to tell him where to go. Steve, you just brought up a perfect example because, look, we all speed at times. I'm not uh, admitting any guilt here on the air, but I may have eclipsed the speed limit once or twice. But when you do that, you're right. It's your responsibility. And you know what? You may drive along a particular street 99 times and never get pulled over. 
Does that mean if the one time you're going the exact same speed as you always go and you do get pulled over, it's the police officer who's at fault for pulling you over? According to Patrick Mahomes, it would be, right? Like, he, he would blame he would blame the, the police officer. You always let me fault. go. You always let yeah. me go before. Yeah. I don't know. So when should, I mean, when should officials, should, we're getting right to the bare bones then, mm-hmm. should games and rules always be called by the letter of the law? I think you keep yourself out of trouble when you do that. To the letter of the law is how you officiate. You keep yourself out of trouble because nobody, because in their right minds in this case, can complain or say you're not doing your job if you just referee it by the book, and there will always be video to support it. Now, that's always assuming, too, that referees are 100% correct, because that's the other factor in this. They have to be 100% correct that that way, and we all know they're only 97% correct. And we have to deal with the 3%. So that's what I tell Patrick Mahomes, too. Patrick, deal with the 3%. Well, and we said right off the top, this we're not talking in this particular case about a blown call. Blown calls we can discuss and ang- be angry about and go on social media and scream and make memes all day long. What we're talking about, which I find so interesting, is they called this correctly. They called this correctly by every account and the referee is still being abused for this and called all kinds of names. To me, any time in sports you get a correct call, we should be thanking the official, regardless of what the circumstance was. You're going to blow calls. We're just glad you didn't blow the call. It was a right call, right. and yet we're still dumping on them. And same, sometimes, too, it's just a game of angles. They may, they may have called it correctly from what they could see. Right? Like they just may have a different angle on something. So they saw, they called what they could see. So it is tricky. Like I didn't really answer your question that well, but I will answer it. Just say, keep it black and white, call it by the book, and you'll have a better chance of uh, doing well, and the right team will win the game. All right. Last thing, because you're on the sidelines, you, uh, if people tune into the Bills game anytime they're playing at home, very likely they will see you on TV. I have seen you numerous times. I've sent you photos by text of you on TV as the star of the game. And you are very often within two feet of the head coach of either of the team that's playing, either Buffalo or whomever else. How often are you hearing them going after the refs to give them a favorable call? Oh, often. Yeah, often. It's You know what the funny part is, though? It's always only the, the referee right in front of them or the side judge, like the down judge or the side judge, the line judge or the field judge, because they're the ones closest. The head referee escapes most of it because he's out in the middle of the field and nobody can hear him. <laughs> so it is funny the way they operate and the way they work, right? It's it's human nature, and it's really comical and entertaining at times, for sure. That is why Dave Foxcroft never thought that he had ever made a wrong call, because he never heard anyone complain. He was in the middle of the field where it was just perfect surrender serenity and nothing around him. And, you know, and we don't want to, we don't want to burst his bubble, right? I mean, let, no, he's retired exactly. now. Let him think yeah. that he, he refereed a perfect career. We'll let that go. That's okay. Yeah, Orlando and uh, all the coaches, <laughs> Dickinson's and Mike O'Shea, they all loved him. Even Pinball said he was good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> According there, to him. There you go. Hey, that is, uh, that is Steve Foxcroft. Always love having you on. And hey, look for Steve. Look for Steve oh, Sunday. Sunday. Dallas Cowboys in Buffalo. Steve will probably be wearing red with a blue cap on, holding one of the (laughs) sticks. Um, He'll be the really handsome one standing next to Sean McDermott. And like you, I'll have driven the speed limit to get there. (laughs) There you go. Thanks for doing this. (laughs) Okay. Talk soon. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.